0: Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan and just a quick reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud and you can always find us on irishtimes.com. Also, if you like what you hear in our two episodes a week, uploaded on Mondays and Thursday, please do tell all your friends and go to iTunes and write a review there explaining why you think this podcast is a great listen. We really appreciate the support. Before we get on with the episode we wanted to remind you that the Women's Podcast is partnering with Body and Soul Festival Ireland's most beautiful festival filled with three days of music art, culture and wellbeing and lots of great people watching I can tell you from experience. Taking place in the summer solstice weekend June 22nd to 24th in Ballinlock Castle in Westmeath 2018's edition includes Fever Ray, Chronics, Arca John Hopkins who is playing live Iron and Wine, Baxter Jury, and James Holden and the Animal Spirits. Head to bodyandsoul.ie to pick up a final tier ticket and be sure to check out the Irish Times programme on the Woodland stage, taking place on Saturday afternoon. There are brilliant talks planned for Saturday, including a live recording of the women's podcast called The People Have Spoken, which will discuss life in Ireland post-referendum. My guest today is Rosita Boland, and I know many of you will have read and been very moved and indeed shocked by her story last Saturday in the Irish Times. I certainly was. It was a follow-on to the piece Rosita came in to discuss with me where she wrote a forensic account of the day Anne Lovett died on January 31st, 1984. That piece was to mark what would have been the 50th birthday of the Longford teenager. For anyone who doesn't know, Anne Lovett was a 15-year-old schoolgirl who died after giving birth to a son, Patrick, who was stillborn at the grotto in Granite County, Longford. Anne Lovett's death became one of the most soul-searching events of 1980s Ireland and it continues to resonate in the national psyche more than three decades later, in part because so many questions were left unanswered. Rosita's piece last Saturday, an article headlined I Was Anne Lovett's Boyfriend, was an interview with Ricky Macdonald, and it certainly provided many of the missing pieces of this tragic, terrible case. So the last time I was in here with you, Cathy, was
1: talking about the first piece that I wrote, which was uh, came out about maybe six or seven weeks ago now, and it was essentially a reconstruction of Anne Lovett's last day. And at the end of that article, I had my email address and I received several uh, emails from readers after that came out. And uh, among the emails I received was one from a reader who said that uh, your article was read by many people. And I happen to know that one of them who read it was the former boyfriend of Anne Lovett. And I then contacted that reader. She said that she thought he perhaps might be ready to talk. So there was a quite a long process of uh, finally talking to Ricky on the phone and then We met more than once, and obviously with a story this big, there has to be so much trust that he was never going to talk to me unless he felt he could trust me. So the first time we met, there was, I mean, no question of doing an interview at all. There was just we literally met. um, He talked and talked and talked. You know, there was no note taking. There was no recording. There was nothing. I just heard him out and we basically spend time together and he asked me various questions. I told him how, you know, if he decided that he did want to do the interview, that I would keep him informed at every step of the way, because I knew it was going to be a very long process. And I promised him that when the article would come out eventually, that there wouldn't be any surprises in it for him, that he would know. It's not that I was going to be sharing copy with him, but that because I talked him through the process the whole way along that he would know the, the shape of it and
0: how much care I had uh, was going to take with it. So you met him in various places, Rosita. You sat down. And what was he looking for from you? What did you sense he needed?
1: He needed to be heard. After 34 years, his story had never been told. He said that... His name had been there in the mix from the beginning. Now, his name was never uh, published as being Anne Lovett's uh, former boyfriend. But at the time when the story broke, everybody, uh, the local media and national media, in fact, did know who they were looking for. He received many notes from um, both local uh, media and members of the national media asking for interviews. As he said to me, he just put them all in the bin. He was a 17 year old, severely traumatised boy at that time. He was never going to be speaking. And then as the years went on, he he felt um, an obligation, I suppose, about the oath of secrecy that he uh, has said that he was asked to swear, which um, has been denied by uh, Bishop, uh, the former uh, Bishop of Arda and Clon MacNoise, Colin O'Reilly. And then it was out of respect to um, uh, Patricia Lovett, who only died uh, three years
0: ago. That's Anne's uh, mother.
1: Yes, that's, that's Anne's mother. Um, Dermot Lovett had died uh, back in the 80s, but uh, Patricia Lovett was still living in Granard in the original family home. And there are, of course, many uh, family members still alive. So it's it's always incredibly delicate to be telling a story that involves so many people's lives. But at the heart of it all is a story that is bigger than one family or
0: one town. It is a a public interest story. So Ricky was waiting, not waiting, but he decided to wait until Anne Lovett's mother died before he felt he could speak out.
1: It wasn't really a conscious decision. He He read my story and... <sighs> As he told me later, he just couldn't bear it any longer, that he couldn't bear that he had been this uh, sort of shadowy, invisible presence in the narrative for so long. And he. His his life and the lives of many other people have been so deeply affected by the silence that's continued in Granard around that story for so long, and he literally just couldn't bear it any longer. And when my story came out, I it prompted him to, given that uh, Patricia Lovett was now deceased, it prompted him into thinking, can I tell my story? But then the next question was, is it safe to tell my story? Who do I tell my story to? Because the story has so many dimensions that I can completely understand how how um, daunting it was for him first to decide and then how is it going to be told? And I feel really privileged that he chose me to
0: tell his story. Rosita, there is much talk now about, you know, anybody can be a journalist. Anybody can do the job of journalism. It's a question of going and chatting to people, getting down with the people and just writing it down and putting it out there bravely and fearlessly. What was the difference between what you have done with this story and the difference and with someone who maybe had no experience of journalism?
1: Well, first of all, it's time. And I'm really, really grateful to The Irish Times for giving me time to work first on the original story, which took about three weeks and then the story took about five. It was five weeks probably between the time I first talked to him and when the story ran. So first of all, it's time. Um, So we're lucky as an organization that we can give our journalists time to work on stories. And the other is fact checking that goes on and on and on and on. And I would say the majority of the work I did on the story was um, fact checking. It was a slightly existentialist task because. We had to. I found uh, Ricky to be an entirely and wholly credible narrator. Narrator, but we had to. It was a, the existentialist sort of task of it was trying to prove that he was in Granard at that time and he was who he said he was because we've never uh, known his name before. So that was um, a fiendish task, and that involved trawling through newspaper archives. It involved going back to all the journalists who covered the story originally, asking them what have they heard about the boyfriend at the time. I did talk to other, I mean, I was talking to a number of people um, about this, uh, connected with the story. There were five people I was, I was talking to connected with the story.
0: Um, and can we just point out, Rosita, to get to those five people was in itself a task of great sensitivity I mean, in certain cases, you approached people who had never been approached before through someone else and then winning their trust.
1: Well, the corroboration of him being in Granard and various things happening came from uh, people who were in Granard at the time uh, who I uh, spoke to. And so there were there were many there were many different sources of, of
0: fact checking. And then, of course, your fact-checking has to be fact-checked by people in in this organisation. Many eyeballs went on that piece. And then lawyers, obviously, have to go over the piece. All of those things happened. Right. Well, it's just not easy, let's say. Um, Let's go back to um, Ricky's background. Tell us a bit about Ricky and his his, uh, upbringing in Granard and what Granard was like back in the 80s and the 70s.
1: He was born in England, so he came over to his parents, split up. Uh, they were Irish born. Uh, they split up when he was about six years old and his mother brought himself and his older brother to Granard, where she had family connections. And he went to the primary school there. He went to the Granard Tech for almost three years. He didn't sit any exams. And that summer, that third summer when he was 15, was about to turn 15. His father uh, died of tuberculosis and his mother, even though they were estranged, his mother had gone over to help care for him in his final weeks. And Ricky went over for the funeral. He stayed in England for the summer and then he didn't want to stay in school anymore, but the authorities said, you've got to go to school. You're a minor. And so he spent a short time in a secondary school in Bedford. He was earning some money by working in a bar, even though he shouldn't have been serving. It was back in the 1980s. He saved up his money. He told his mother he wanted to go back to Granard. She was totally against it, but he landed back and she refused, not refused, but I suppose she hoped that he would come back into her care. So he didn't. she did not give him the key of the house that they had been renting. And he stayed with friends, basically, for months on end. He worked for a farmer. He, it was a, it was a, some of the things he they did to get money was he went with a friend hunting foxes, lamping hares. The foxes were sold for, skins were sold for fox fur. The hares, some of them they ate. (laughs) Some of them they sold outside racetracks uh, in a really quite a, for barbaric practices, which are, of course, illegal, and he said he wouldn't dream of doing them these days. There seemed to be a huge amount of uh, underage drinking. There was lots of, uh, you know, one of the things he told me, which I I didn't put in the story, but that the just gives an example of how widely the drinking was, that one of his schoolmates, who was about the same age as him, would turn up on Monday morning absolutely stocious and it was just accepted by everybody in the school, so it just seemed to be quite a. There were different times. They were. It, it,
0: it was. It was the, the chipper in the town, which they hung around. They played. There was a snooker table, I think, in in, in the pub. Um. So really, the, it was a bit of a wasteland for for uh, for teenagers. Yeah. As Smoking much of cigarettes. Ireland was then. Smoking cigarettes and drinking. And so this was Ricky um, when he met Anne Lovett, living on his own, doing whatever he needed to survive. A vulnerable young lad.
1: He was 15 when he met her and she was 13. And he met her in the family bar in the Copper Pot uh, before they went out hunting one evening, lamping, looking for hares. That's where he met her. And at that point, his mother had sent the key back of the house. So he was living there by himself in this house, working for a local farmer and also working in the local
0: mart. And he was still only 15. He did meet some kindness, let's say, along the way, didn't he? The farmer he worked for, he made a point of saying that he was very good to him. He
1: was very good to him. And he one of the questions that I asked Ricky in the interview, I said, you know, were you able to cook? And he, uh, I mean, were you able to look after yourself? But what happened was that he had all his meals in that farmer's family home. So he was looked after by other people and he had family there as well who were very, very kind to him. So he,
0: you know, he wasn't on his own to that extent, but he was living alone. So he met Anne in the pub run by her family.
1: Yeah, and they um, hit it off immediately. And the next few months, they, you know, their relationship was friendship and uh, smoking fags, as he said, having the crack, hanging out by the pool hall, just just spending some time together. And then after her 14th birthday, it uh,
0: became a sexual relationship. And she stayed overnight in, 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 in the house with him up to four or five nights a week
1: yes she stayed uh, yes that's what he he told me that she w- would stay later and later and as he said he was certain that virtually everybody in granard knew that and the the terrace where he lived to you know to get to the terrace she would have had to walk a particular way so it was clear if that if she was coming back to her own home on main street that she'd been somewhere else and I mean, Main Street, Granard is like a main street anywhere. You, you're you on the main street, and you can see everybody coming and going. So if she was arriving back at 4 a.m. or 7
0: a.m. or whatever time she came back, she was seen. She was seen, which is a pretty startling thing in a deeply conservative country village in the in the early 80s. Um, then something happened one night, Rosita. She she arrived into his house. Um. In deep, crying, distress. in deep distress.
1: Yes, he was upstairs in bed. It was about ten fifteen. She didn't have a key, so she was banging on the door. Uh, he went downstairs to let her in. It was evident she was very distressed. She was crying and he said, come on upstairs to bed and we'll, uh, we'll keep warm. And she came upstairs and she told him that she had been um, assaulted by somebody, um, that she'd been beaten. And he um, he made her show him her. uh, Basically, there was scuff marks, bruising on her thighs. And uh, she was very distressed. He asked her if she had been raped and she didn't answer. She just begged him not to
0: say anything about it and just kept crying. And as time went on after that, they began to drift apart very, in hindsight, noticeably would have been noticeable to observers, maybe. But Ricky kind of felt that he...
1: Yes, as he said, as he said it to me, he thought that it was because he had more uh, work because uh, summer was coming. And obviously working for a farmer, there's a lot more to do in the summertime. And she was studying for exams. Her interest would have been that year. So he thought it was because he was more busy, as he put it. And she had exams. And he also said they didn't ever have a breakup conversation. So it wasn't like they ever formally split up. It was so gradual, he sort of didn't see it. And he also thought that they were, you know, that they would get back together again. He didn't ever see
0: it as a, an ending of the relationship and then rumours began to so that would have been early summer when she when she appeared distressed in his house and they began to drift apart. Then it wasn't until October that he heard a rumour that she was pregnant.
1: Yes, he thinks it's a. It was in October. He remembered exactly where he was. He was standing outside Paddy O'Hara's bar uh, with a group of male friends, and Anne walked past, said hello to everybody, and as she passed on. One of the uh, boys that he was with said, she doesn't look pregnant to me. And as Ricky said, it was like this is when the penny dropped, that he had no idea that these rumors were going around it's the first he'd heard of it. He was absolutely gobsmacked and he said that the first time he met her uh, by themselves after that, he asked her straight out if she was pregnant. She denied it. Um, he said every time he met her on their own after that, he asked her, I said, how many times would that be? He said at least six or seven and that she always denied it, said she would put on some
0: weight. She was embarrassed about it, but she continued to deny it. So She never confided him, never answered his question, which is really baffling. And the last time he saw Rosita was in that week between Christmas and New Year's Day, 1983.
1: Yes, they'd been at a dance together in the Fountain Blue nightclub and which was about 14 miles away or so. He couldn't remember if it was Stephen's night or if it was New Year's night. Um, but it was it was one of those it was one of those evenings. And as he said, she was in the car. He'd got a lift with friends and she came back to Granard in that car with them. They dropped her off at the house. And as he said, you know, it just he he doesn't really remember much else about what he did that night, he said, you know, it was just kind of an ordinary night. None of us knew what was going to happen
0: and drink was taken.
1: Again, underage drinking. And if they were in a nightclub and they were being served by people. Mm-hmm. So it was clear that they were being it, it was clear that that
0: um, yeah, whoever was serving them, you know, knew they were um, underage as well. So that was the end of December. And the next Ricky Hears of Anne is at the end of January.
1: On the 31st of January, he's uh, in... He, it, would, it had been a horrible day. He'd been out pulling down fences, putting up fences. And the weather was so appalling that the farmer he was working with said, look, we'll just call it a day. It's just horrendous weather. Um, so he went and had lunch in the farmer's house and then he went home, got into bed to keep warm, um, had Radio Luxembourg on and about quarter to five or so um, a friend he had who regularly borrowed a bike from him uh, was banging at the door, he went down expecting the friend to be looking for the bike again and is in, instead faced with this extraordinary kind of torrent of incredibly confusing sentences. Anne has been up in the palms has been an accident The, the Broughton was known come as on. the Palms and it's an expression that I had never heard before, I had always thought that this area was just called the grotto, but at the grotto there's some very tall fir tree palms, and local people refer to that grotto area as the palms and he was totally confused and ran up from the door as he as he said, because he just was completely taken aback and anyway he he goes to other people. they haven't heard anything. Somebody else comes back to the house and I think you should go to uh, your aunt's house. And he starts walking down town, down the streets, towards the main street. And as he's getting closer and closer to the main street, he starts to hear the most horrendous wails, cries, moans. And it was everybody who was out on the street. He didn't know at the time, but the ambulance taking Anne, her mother, the dead baby, to Mullingar Hospital, had just departed from outside her home and had left behind this sort of flotsam and jetsam of all of the townspeople who were there, absolutely stunned, shocked, horrified. And he walked into that scene and still had
0: no... The ambulance was gone, so he he had no idea what was happening. He describes a lot of young people screaming, a girl pulling out handfuls of her own hair. It It was clearly extraordinary. And that's a description I don't think I'd ever heard before about the scene in Granite that evening. Um, and then what happened? So he he went into his aunt's house, I presume, then. and
1: Yes, somebody came to the house a little later uh, to, to say that Anne had been taken away in the ambulance and then they got the news that she had died. And as he said, it was evident at that stage she was after having a baby. And as he said to me it all descended into chaos after that and he was so uh, traumatized and shocked and upset that the local doctor was called to sedate him and he said he didn't know whether he woke up later that night or the next night or but he was just so absolutely distressed and out of his mind and clearly the
0: horrendous trauma of it that um, he required sedation And in Ricky's case, what happened next, Rosita? So a lot of things happened
1: in the week after Anne died. Uh, His mother was asked to come back to Granard. She was still in Bedford. She was asked by the Granard guards to come back. She came back and the day she came back, uh, Ricky was asked to go up to the Garda station to give a statement so she accompanied him to the guard the station, but it was just himself and the detective in the room as he gave the statement. And the questions, uh, as you would expect, uh, since he was her former boyfriend, uh, were, you know, how long did you have a sexual relationship? Where did you have sex? Do you know if she had relationships with anybody else? So he told her, he told the guard everything uh, about his um, relationship with Anne. And he also told... Um, the detective about the evening she had come to him in distress saying that she had been assaulted. So, that the, was all in his statement. That was all in his statement, which he signed and uh, which he read
0: and signed. He wasn't given a copy of it. That was one thing. There were. And just let's just. That has never been seen since. That file has gone missing.
1: I've tried very hard to find that file and I have not been able to find it. Right. So what happened next? Well, in the days, also in that week after Anne's death, two friends of hers were invited by Mrs Lovett to go up to her bedroom and um, take some mementos to remember Anne by. And so they went up with, uh, they went up with Patricia Anne's younger sister and they took various things. She liked apparently to collect novelty soaps. Um, they took some trinkets, some of her jewellery, and then they found a small suitcase under her bed, which was full of all of the treasures that teenage girls of every era loved to hoard. And in it were two sealed envelopes. One had no name on it and the other had Ricky on it.
0: Now, we have three people in that room at the time, Rosita. We have Anne's sister, Patricia, and, and two, two of friends. her friends. OK, friends. so we have three people who saw those two letters. We have three people. In one addressed to Ricky.
1: One addressed to Ricky. The girls sat on the bed together and they opened the envelope, which was had no name on it. And they read it together. They passed it around among each other. And they recognised Anne's handwriting. And one of the friends had told me they used to exchange notes all the time. They'd leave notes in their lockers. You know, as was now we have text messages, but what teenage girls did back then is they wrote notes to each other and left them in their lockers, and she was absolutely 100% certain it was Anne's handwriting. And so one friend said what she remembered um, and has never forgotten after all of these years was, if I'm not dead by the 31st of January, I'm going to kill myself. And the other friend remembered, it's better for everyone this way. It's, 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 it's better this way. So... Patricia Lovett took the two envelopes down to her mother and gave them to Mrs. Lovett. And at some point after that, Mrs. Lovett and Louise Lovett arrived to the house where Ricky was staying, very distressed, and they gave him the envelope which was addressed to him, which they had opened, which was completely understandable because you, if your child had died, of course, you would want to know what was in that letter. Uh, they gave it to him and they told him that it wasn't his fault. He recalls it as being two sheets of paper with writing on three sides and he only read it once because he was absolutely, as he said, I was emotionally shredded and the gist of it was that how much Anne had loved him, how sorry she was for what she was about to do
0: and the reason was that nobody would believe that he was the father of that child. What did Ricky take from the letter that was sent to him? What message did he take from it?
1: I suppose how much she had loved him, and it, it, uh, it. But it was a. He was mystified as well. He did not. He says even to this day he doesn't understand why she never told him that she was pregnant, given it was possible that he was the father of the child. And he said to to him, it seemed her decision to go and have the baby in the grotto was an act of protest because nobody that just wasn't that there was so much help that she could have got and anybody who's logical would have um, sought that help. And it was completely out of character for her. And she was an incredibly um, strong minded, independent person. She was not the passive girl that we've had a narrative of for the last 34 years. And he, he, found, he found all of this just completely mm. out
0: of character. What he said to you, Rosita, was she went to the grotto and she'd done that for a reason. This isn't an accident. This was not about her going off somewhere quiet on her own. That is not Anne Lovett. That's not Anne. Anne could have gone to any woman in Granard and they would have got her help. So to me, this was a protest on her behalf. That's what I feel. I don't believe any other thing. So Ricky believes this letter was that, what, that her actions... Or a protest?
1: Yes, that's 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 his that's his opinion of what he uh, of what he read in that letter. But remember, he only read it once because he was so absolutely distraught and uh, the, the Lovets had left by then. And then, uh, as he said to me, two hours later, Father Quinn landed at the house. And Father Quinn has has denied that that this ever happened. This uh, is Father happened. John Quinn, the parish curate. Father John curate. Quinn, He was yeah, the Catholic curate. Um, so Ricky has said that Father Quinn had heard that there was a letter addressed to him, and had uh, that the uh, Mrs. Lovett and Patricia and um, Louise Lovett had brought it to him, and he uh, demanded to see it. They went into the sitting room. Um, Father John Quinn read it twice so Ricky says and looked at him and said that letter will cause so much trouble it will destroy the town burn that letter
0: and Ricky put it in the fire Now you have been trying to contact Father Quinn but you were talking to his solicitors who have denied any knowledge of a letter written by the late Anne Lovett and accordingly did not request to see such a letter they say Yes
1: I called on Father John Quinn at his parochial house in Rural Leitrim, where he is a priest and left uh, left an envelope with a number of questions in it. And uh, he replied through his solicitors who made it clear that he felt Father Quinn felt it was inappropriate of me to have approached him in this way. So thereafter, I corresponded with Father Quinn's solicitors and while he did um Uh, He did say that he had been a curate in Granard at that time and he had known Ricky and various things had happened. He categorically denied that uh, he'd ever gone to the house, that there had been, obviously, all of these other questions then about the letter were um, not um, relevant because he'd never gone there, is what he said. And he also said that he never brought Ricky to see the
0: then uh, Bishop of Arda and Clon so then there was the Garda interview and then Ricky says he was taken to see the Bishop, Colm O'Reilly. So
1: Ricky says uh, the day after he gave his statement to the guards, Father John Quinn came and said that the Bishop wanted to see him. Um, so he drove him to the Bishop's Palace in Longford. Um, this is what Ricky says. And Ricky says that there were four of them in the room. There was Father John Quinn himself, um, the former Bishop Colm O'Reilly and uh, an unnamed member of the clergy who appeared to be part of um, the bishop's um, colleagues and he was asked to, this was what Ricky says, that he was asked to repeat his statement that he had given to the guards, which he did in full, including the part about the assault and then that there was some conversation between the three of them uh, at the end and he said he was just out of, like he, he it was all going over his head, He he was He wasn't focusing on what they were um, what they were saying. And I asked if anything was being written down. And he said, no, it was all it was all being spoken. And uh, at the end of the conversation, the Bishop, uh, this is what Ricky says. Ricky says that the Bishop um, told him that he was swearing him to an oath of secrecy never to repeat to anybody else what he had said in a statement. And he held out his ring
0: and Ricky says he asked him to kiss the bishop's ring So you Rosita put the question to him a number of questions to him uh, Col O'Reilly is now retired um, but he issued a statement in response to your questions via the Catholic Communications Office in which he said Bishop O'Reilly has never met or communicated with Mr Richard Macdonald Bishop O'Reilly has never asked anyone to meet or communicate with Mr Macdonald on his behalf
1: Yes that's correct
0: So it's Ricky's word or the Bishop's. Father Quinn's solicitors also say that Father Quinn did not drive Mr. Macdonald to see Bishop O'Reilly and this meeting did not take place with Bishop O'Reilly and the suggestion by Mr. Macdonald that he was requested to swear an oath of secrecy about a statement which is on the Garda file and therefore on the record is absurd and erroneous. Now, as we already mentioned, that Garda file is missing, unfortunately. Yes. Then... Ricky says that Father Quinn took him on a tour of the North. That appears to be undisputed. They went away for a few days.
1: Yes, the reason given was to take him away from, uh, take him away from the media attention.
0: And uh, they stayed with various relatives of Father Quinn. Father Quinn himself says, "Yes, that, that Father Quinn
1: has has confirmed that." And by the time they came back to Granard, the local authorities had requested the key of the council house, which had which he had lived in from the age of six. They had requested that back from his mother. And uh, Ricky told me that he helped his mother um, distribute some of her belongings from the house and his belongings to neighbours on the terrace. So he was effectively homeless after that. And she returned to England and Father Quinn offered Ricky a room
0: in his house. Which he accepted. Um. And Father Quinn, in an an act of kindness and helpfulness, brought Ricky to see Patrick Cooney, who was then Minister for Defence, who lived in Athlone, actually not that far from Granard.
1: Yes, so there's a... So Ricky says that Father John Quinn brought him to Patrick Cooney to ask for help to enlist him into the army. And uh, while Father John Quinn's Uh, solicitors have have confirmed that this meeting took place. Patrick Cooney himself has said that he has no recollection of the meeting or of having met Ricky MacDonald and uh, also said that he couldn't possibly have helped him get into the army anyway. He would have had to go through
0: the proper channels. But lo and behold, he did get into the army.
1: Yes, he did. And he enlisted two weeks after
0: his uh, 18th birthday and stayed there for three years. Rosita, there was an inquest into Anne Lovett's death. Did that reveal anything that bears out any of what Ricky has said? Was it revealing in any way about Anne's life or Ricky's part in it or what might have happened to lead to that event at the end of January?
1: Well, it's the it's the coroner who uh, who chooses the people to give um, evidence at an inquest, and all of the statements which the guards collect are uh, put in a file and sent to the coroner. So R- Ricky was not called um, to the inquest or asked to be there. So he none of his uh, he wasn't basically called to give any evidence, and the pathologist who had done the autopsy, gave his statement um, uh, as to the cause of death. Uh, Patricia Lovett's statement was read by a granard guard. She was too distressed to read it herself. She said that they, if they had known Anne uh, was pregnant, they would have got her the help that she needed. Um, her father, Dermot, said "You know, there was no trouble at home and that any of their children could have come to them if they'd had any difficulties.
0: Now, Anne's sister Patricia, 14 yes. years old at the time, took her own life about a few months later, Rosita. Was there anything about that that that, that at, at Patricia's own inquest that revealed anything about the circumstance of her death or her own state of mind at that time? Well, reporting around
1: uh, inquests to do with suicide were very different in in the 1980s because the the reporting at the time... Um, had details about uh, she I mean she she died by an overdose but it, it went into some detail about the type of medication which wouldn't happen at all today so I thought it was inappropriate um, and unethical to put that into the story now um, so she had been out uh, she'd been out at a dance in the Mickey Mouse Club and got a lift back to Granard with Father John Quinn and who dropped her off at um, about a quarter to three, uh, Ricky was also in the car that dropped her off. And at the inquest, Dermot Lovett actually wasn't there because he would since had a heart attack, but Mrs Lovett was there. She said that she'd gone to bed around midnight, that her husband had come to bed about three and then he'd woke her later to say that Patricia was crying. And Patricia was dead by five o'clock. She was dead
0: uh, two hours, barely two hours after she got home. And in the meantime, she—the pathologist told the inquest that she had an acquired, she had acquired a bruise on the left side of her chin and an abrasion on her left cheek. Um, so this is a deeply tragic family, um, a deeply tragic story, Rosita. What we know now about Ricky is that he joined the army. I suppose that got him into something stable and regular. But how did Ricky fare after that? Well, he went back to England. Um, he
1: stayed in the army for three years. He went back to England. He, you know, he had a troubled... He was very, very traumatised by the events that happened, as were many other people that he knew in Granard. And he um, drank to excess for years. He, he stopped drinking more than 10 years ago. But he was deeply traumatised by what had happened. It It made it very difficult for him to trust was women in other relationships. Um, He just, you know, it was an era when there was no counselling available to anybody either. And he was damaged, but he was not the only person who was damaged by the things that happened in Granart at that time or who continued to face um, the effects of the trauma. And this is a story that is not. Been fully told by any means yet, and it is a story which has so many different layers That there are more there. I I want
0: to continue to keep telling the story. Because in the meantime, Rosita, um, Ricky's daughter, who was born two years after Anne died, um, she responded to your article on Saturday with a, uh, she posted a piece on Facebook um, in which she said the silence surrounding this horrific tragedy has been an enormous burden on so many people. Three lives ended in a state of unthinkable desperation and the trauma that stayed with those who cared about Anne and Patricia fuelled endless cycles of depression, alcoholism, self-harm, violence, self-destructive behaviour and sadly suicides. This is Vicky Langan and she she winds up by saying I want to thank Rosita Boland for her important reporting on this story and for her kindness and sensitivity over the past few weeks. She showed such care and dedication The people involved in this story. I can't see any more than that. Than you wrote a stunningly revealing piece about life in Ireland back in the eighties. There are threads still to be pulled, but you have left people behind in this story who are deeply grateful to you for what you have done so far. And I suppose we can look forward to part three, can we? I'm still working on this story. Well, thank you very much, Rosita Boland, for coming in to tell us about that extraordinary piece of work. And I know you'll be back again. That's all we have time for. The podcast is produced by Rosine Ingle and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan and I'll talk to you next time.